Well, good morning to you, and uh, this is quite a uh, time to step up to the pulpit following that crew this morning. It's kind of like following Katie after she makes an announcement. You don't want to do that as a speaker. It's all downhill after that. So, um, but what a, what a great job they did. And I guess Jessica is out, but we surely want to recognize her and thank her. So when you see her, be sure you say thank you. I don't know why, but because uh, it happens with all of us every Sunday morning. But driving to church, I couldn't help but just kind of notice that uh, people were out doing their thing, riding bikes, walking, uh, taking their little babies in a stroller. And uh, I don't know why, but it just kind of dawned on me how many people were out there that don't have a clue that someday they're going to stand before a holy and righteous God and give an account. How many of those parents know that those little children growing up, uh, many of them, I suppose, didn't have the benefit that these children did here, to sing happy songs about the Lord, to hear the word of God, and to have an opportunity uh, to know Christ as, as Savior. And it behooves us as a church, because it comes right down to you and me, what am I doing about warning people of that which is coming if they know not the Savior, and telling them of the great thing that God has done, what he's done in your life, what he's done in my life, and to share the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ with people. Maybe it's because my mind's been on uh, the holiness of God, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Isaiah chapter 6, uh, verses 1 to 3, if you have your uh, Bible. And if you don't, there is a Bible in the chair in front of you, and it's on page 571. So this is uh, continuing our series on knowing God, the attributes of God, and today we focus on his uh, focus on his holiness as revealed in Isaiah 6, and we'll see the various responses to his holiness. Now, I don't expect you to remember, but I preached on this chapter about three years ago. And I say I don't expect you to remember because I couldn't remember, and I preached the message. And sometimes you can't remember what was preached the week before, let alone three years ago. So I thought to myself, you know, I could save myself a lot of time and just bring out that message and preach it again. No one would know the difference. Uh, John MacArthur said that uh, when he was a young preacher, that his father, who was also a pastor and a preacher, used to say to him, son, if you're going to preach an old sermon, at least yell in different places. <laughs> so I... I've got to remember where I yelled last time and then yelled different places this, this time. Uh, but it really isn't the same message. It's completely a, a, a reworked uh, message from this text. And I'm approaching it from just a little bit different of a viewpoint. The Hebrew word kadesh and the Greek word hagios have two meanings, one primary, one secondary. The first has to do with being set apart to transcendent majesty. We might explain it in a class by itself. It's how we would put it in English terminology. The second, of course, of holiness carries 
the idea of moral purity. And so our passage this morning, Isaiah chapter 6, and if you ever coupled that with Revelation, the last book of the Bible, chapter 4, you would see that God is declared to be holy, holy, holy. Years ago, and I can remember when I was raised in the Presbyterian church in Mount Lebanon outside of Pittsburgh, I think every Sunday we sang the doxology, the glory of Patra, and holy, holy, holy. Uh, it was just one of those hymns that was such a standard that many of us uh, know well. Holiness is the only attribute of God that is emphasized in this way. You never see angels, people, whomever, saying, love, love, love. You never see them saying, just, just, just. But here we see this trilogy, holy, holy, holy. And in the Hebrew language, if you want to emphasize something, then you're said to actually repeat it. If you wanted to say a stone was big, it would mean one thing. If you said a stone was big, I mean big, I mean really big, then you realize he's talking about a stone that is kind of set apart from the others. So as we delve into the subject of knowing God, we must understand the idea of the holiness of God. Listen to somewhat great writers, even from the Puritan age, uh, have said about the holiness of God. Thomas Watson said, Holiness is the most sparkling jewel of God's crown. It is the name by which he is known. A.A. A. Hodge said, It is infinite moral perfection as the crown of the Godhead. Holiness is God's total glory crowned. R.L. Dabney added, Holiness is to be guarded not just as a distinct attribute, but as the result of all God's moral perfection together. And then Isaiah himself would write later in his book, chapter 57, 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. Holy is his name. Now we put all that together with some of these biblical texts. We see he alone is perfect, he alone is without sin. He's never had a wrong motive. He's never had one impure thought. He's never lied. And all this simply doesn't mean that God is without error, but it means that he alone is incomparable. No one, no created being even comes close when it comes to the holiness of God. So as we look at Isaiah 6, we're reminded that this is a chapter where we see the commissioning or the call of Isaiah living about, in round terms, 750 B.C. So he's living 750 years before the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's Isaiah's call to his prophetic ministry. Isaiah didn't know it, but it's going to be a very difficult ministry for him. It's going to be a ministry of judgment. Uh, no one takes great delight in preaching judgment, uh, wrath. But that's Isaiah's ministry. And he's going to pronounce and preach the, 
the judgment upon Israel at that time, but it's also going to be used by the writer of the New Testament to see how there was an imminent fulfillment in Isaiah's day and shortly after he died. But the writers of the New Testament take it a step further to the time where Israel would reject its Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this happens often with Old Testament prophetic truths. Isaiah, the prophet of judgment. Yet the prophet who probably more than any other writer of the Old Testament described the suffering servant of Jehovah and his loving sacrifice on the cross more than any other Old Testament writer, perhaps more than all the Old Testament writers put together. So who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? He shall grow up before them like a tender plant. Uh, there's no form or comeliness that we should desire him. He was smitten of God and afflicted, yet we hid as it were our faces from him. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. And the chastisement of our peace was laid upon him. All we like sheep have gone astray. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it pleased the Lord to bruise his son. For he shall see the travail of his sacrifice and be satisfied. All those are the words of Isaiah the same prophet of doom and judgment who gave the great message of grace and mercy and a forgiving Savior. Notice with me in Isaiah 6.1 that what Isaiah saw as he went into the temple. It says he saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, verse 1. And then in verse 5 he says, For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now we know that Isaiah did not see the very essence of God Almighty, for no man can see him, since he is, according to the Apostle Paul, king of the ages, immortal, invisible, God only wise. Well, what did Isaiah see? Better yet, who did Isaiah see when he was immersed in the presence of the holiness and glory? of Jehovah God Almighty, the creator of the world. When we come to the New Testament, we see that answer is revealed to none other than the Apostle John. And as he moves through the first 12 chapters where it's Christ's revelation to the world, as you come to chapter 12, you now enter a strategic point in Jesus' life, the last week of his life. We often refer to it as the Passion Week. It is in John 12, 27, where he would say, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this reason I came into the world. And so the whole chapter is really a chapter of the, of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ that he will endure on the cross in just a few days. As John then comes to the end of chapter 12, I want you to notice what he says, and we don't have time to read the preceding verses, but in verses 39 to 41, listen to these great words. Now, it's clear in the context, John's talking about Jesus Christ, who has lived among men now for three and a half years, and is getting uh, set to go to the cross. 
He says, therefore, they could not believe. For again, and notice Isaiah. Now he's going to go back to the very text we're in, Isaiah 6. And in that context, he's going back to Isaiah 53 as well. But in particular, I'm pointing out the text we're in, Isaiah 6. He says, therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded the, their eyes and un- hardened their heart, lest they should see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things, catch this, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah said, I saw the glory of the Lord high and lifted up. He's the king of the universe. 750 years later, John says, Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, our wonderful Savior. Remember, it was last week we referred to a verse and to a conversation in eternity past when the father looks at his son before the world was ever created. And he looks at his son and he says, Forever, O God, forever, O God, your throne is settled in heaven. The father looks at the son and calls him God because we believe in the triunity of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So this is what we call in theology a Christophany. Don't let the word scare you. Christ, Christ, from Thanios, appearance. It's an appearance of Christ. And anytime you see deity... When deity is ascribed to the appearance of a person or being, it is always the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, that is, before he took on human flesh there in, in Bethlehem. Jonathan Edwards said, God only appears in human shape in the Son. It is him we love and him we serve. So I take that long introduction simply to say that we're focusing, yes, on the holiness of God. But in particular, we're focusing on the holiness of the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because sometimes when we think of the holiness of God, we're thinking of something way transcendent and out there. But here I want us to picture the Lord Jesus who walked among men, suffered on the cross. And it is his glory that Isaiah actually saw. Three responses to it I want to point out to you. And as I do, I I hope that the Spirit of the Lord will touch your heart and your mind and open it as only He can do, and that you will have in your heart a response to that holiness. And just see how desperate, how utterly desperate how filthy, how sinful, how unclean you are before him. And that without the grace and mercy of God, you will suffer under the judgment of God for all eternity. All because, as he says, lest they would turn with their heart and I would heal them because that's what God wants to do. The first response is the holiness of Christ and the seraphim in verses three, 1 to 3. Christ's holiness and the seraphim. In the year that King Uzziah died, 
I saw the Lord upon a throne high lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now you notice three things that stood out to, uh, uh, to Isaiah as he is in the, and he sees the glory of Jesus Christ. Number one, God was on the throne. Now he mentions that in contrast that Uzziah, the great king of Israel, had just died that year. We don't know how, was it 12 months ago, 12 days, we don't know, but he died. And so it was fresh on the hearts of the prophet and the people. Uzziah, the king of Israel, died, but God was still on the throne. What a comfort. Number two, the throne, he points out, was high and exalted or lifted up, which means it's greater and exceeded all other thrones you've ever thought about, speaking of his royal majesty. Thirdly, the thing he, that stood out to him was the train of his robe filled the temple. I don't know why it is, I don't know how it all began, but many of you know when a beautiful bride walks down the aisle, there is often her dress often has a long train coming behind it. Many of you remember the wedding of Diana and Prince Charles and how it took people behind Diana to actually uh, carry the train. It was so long that people had to carry the train of her dress. Why? Why did she do that? It was a symbol of royalty. Princes die. So there's royalty in the blood. The train of God, though, fills the entire temple. His royalty far surpasses anything we have known or can imagine. Indeed, as Isaiah said, mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so will you someday. And so will I. At his side were seraphim. This is the only time they're mentioned in the Bible. You won't find them spoken anywhere else. Many believe they are at the top of the echelon of the angelic world. Their one job is to give glory to the Lord. And we know that if these seraphim were without sin, they were pure. And yet with their six wings, they cover their face and their feet. Now catch that. These seraphim have never sinned. They have never thought sin. They are without sin. But as powerful and magnificent as they are, even they cannot look upon the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ in his holiness, nor do they feel worthy even to leave their feet exposed in his presence. Every time you see an angel appearing to man in the Bible, great fear came upon man. And the message that would often come would be, fear not. But man was terrified with the Brilliance and power of an angel, but angels themselves hide in holy fear and reverence from the glory and splendor of God. If that's true of a holy, innocent creation who has never sinned or thought sin, where does that put the likes of you and me? Where, where am I in that? How much more will we shudder and quake in his presence who cannot even endure the splendor of the angels? 
These images are simply designed to point us to a majesty in God that should provoke reverence and awe. Not a flippant worship. Not a buddy-buddy God relationship. True worship begins when we stop and gasp at the wonder, power, and otherness of God. Worship begins when we catch a glimpse of his holiness. That's the response of the seraphim. Notice Christ's holiness in the prophet Isaiah and his response, verses 4 to 7. Isaiah's response was simply, woe is me. I mean, that's basically it. Verses 4 and 5, he records, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, anytime anyone gets a glimpse of anything of the holiness or glory of Almighty God, they are terrified. Why? Exodus 33, 20 said, God said, For man shall not see me and live. If God in his full holiness and glory ever revealed himself to man, there would immediately be death upon the person to whom he appeared. God is so holy, he'll destroy anything sinful or unclean. The first response of an unholy person to the holiness of God is an acute awareness of his own personal sinfulness. It's kind of like we live most of our lives with some of the lights off. And we are so good at hiding our sin and covering our sin with the darkness that we walk in at times. But when we come into the presence of God, the darkness is gone. All sin, unrighteousness is exposed. Ezekiel saw his glory and he wrote, and when I saw it, I fell on my face. Peter caught a glimpse of Christ's glory. He fell down at Jesus' feet saying, depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. When John caught a glimpse of Christ's glory in Revelation 1, his response was, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. One of the questions I have asked men and women for well over 50 years, it's a second question I ask them. If you were to die today and you were to face God in heaven and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? That's more than an academic question. That's a question that you must answer and where you spend eternity depends upon your response. Please answer it in your heart. Answer it. You're not sitting there before me. You're sitting now and it's only you and God. And you're seeing him in all his holiness and splendor. And God says, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Most people, dare I say 95%, I think I'd be pretty close to correct of the responses I've heard in about a 50-some plus years of answer asking this question. Can all be summarized kind of in one little sentence that says, because of what I have done, and I think that will be enough to get me into heaven. July 4th, I talked to a couple. I asked them those very questions. Nice couple. 
late 50s, early 60s maybe. The man said, well, he says, I think I've lived a pretty good life. Same answer. It's what I've done. The wife says, you know, when I was a little girl, I accepted Jesus into my heart. But she says, I don't know. I don't think it really matters because it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. And there's no easy way to say, you know, what you're saying is what I've heard most people say, but it is completely contrary to what God's word says. I was in prison on Thursday, talked with four men. Two have embraced the grace of God. Two were new. One of the two that I spoke to, I gave the gospel to, asked those questions. He's been in and out of prison all 34 years. I said, what would you say if you, you're not sitting across from me, you're sitting across from God? He says, you know, he says, I've done the best I can. And I'm thinking to myself, I didn't say it. This is the best you can? You've been in and out of prison 34 years? Doesn't something tell you things aren't quite as they ought to be? We got him on lesson one, and I'll be going back. I knew they weren't quite ready at this point to take the next step, but we've got them studying the Word of God. All our lives we feel we're doing pretty good because we've been comparing ourselves with those around us. And even, a, even an inmate who's been in for 34 years and says, I've done the best I can, I can take that a step further because what has he done? He's done exactly what you've done, what I used to do as well, and what you've done in the past. He compares himself, what? With someone that's worse than him. You can always find somebody that's worse than you, right? Maybe hard for some of you, but you can do it. You can find it. And so we look at those people and we say, well, I've, you see, what I've done. It's only when we catch a glimpse of his holiness that the walls of delusion come crumbling down. That's why I believe that a person who has no sense of their own sinfulness has really never had a true sense of the nature of God. The person that believes that he is saved by his good works has no awareness of how deeply stained they are. We must be undone before we can be remade, recreated, regenerated. The Holy Spirit has to awaken us to our sinfulness before we can be summoned to his grace. Notice something else about Isaiah's conviction. Look at verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What was Isaiah most conscious of? I think he was most conscious, as he brings out here, of his unclean lips. Now think about it, that was Isaiah's greatest strength. It was he that would be a spokesman for God. He would be the mouthpiece of God. His lips should have been the one thing that fared well in the light of God's holiness, but it was his lips that he saw as utterly sinful. Even in his greatest strength, he was undone when it was compared to God's holiness. That now takes me to the flip side of the men I talked to, because I talked to another inmate, a second one, person to person. And I hear, look, God can never save me. You don't know what I've done. 
You don't know me. But I can tell you this. God could never welcome me. And I have the great joy to say, you know, you're probably closer to the kingdom of God than those who have been raised in most churches because you at least see your sinfulness. And only when you see your sinfulness do you need a savior. Only then. It's a hard word, but Steve Lawson is right when he said people who go to hell deserve to go there. People who go to heaven do not deserve to go there. The first is justice, the second is grace. That's so true. It's hard because we can't catch that concept of how holy God is. If God sent every human being that was ever born on earth, except for his son, to hell, he would be just in doing so. Because every person born of Adam and Eve's sons and daughters deserve hell. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. It's your choice. This is the human side. Isaiah's people, Israel, had a choice. The people at Christ's crucifixion had a choice. And while it is God who is sovereign and God we know sometimes blinds minds and hearts, and there is the electing force and power of, a, of the Holy Spirit and God Almighty, yet every time the person is held responsible for his decision and reaction. You say, explain that, I can't and neither can you or any other theologian. Because it's in the infinite mind of God. But I do know this. It's your choice. You will face Jesus as your merciful Savior, or you will face him as your eternal judge. And it could be what you decide this moment will determine that. Let's close the message. Christ, holiness in the world. As we close out the message, verses 8 to 13, let's be reminded where we began. In the year that King Uzziah died, so when Uzziah's reign entered in disgrace due to his disobedience, nevertheless, he was a good king for 52 years, but he allowed sin and pride to enter in, and he ended his reign in disgrace. But the people all those years did not follow the leadership of their good king. If you read the chapter before, you would find that Isaiah gives six woes, six words of judgment. To the people of Israel, sins such as materialism, drunkenness, immorality, etc., which would result in God's judgment. And they would not come and they would not believe. Isaiah has been humbled by the holiness of God. He's been cleansed through the ceremonially removal of his guilt and sin, the expiation. And now he's ready to be commissioned by the Lord as his mouthpiece to the nation. Verse 8 says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Notice not the teaching of, but the allowance for the Trinity there. Whom shall I send? Now that's Jesus. Because John says he saw the glory of Jesus. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? That's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit using the first person plural pronoun. 
Perhaps this passage has been used more than any other in the Bible to convince a young man or woman to go into full-time Christian ministry and service. We go to Bible college, we go to seminary, and then we are ordained or we're commissioned to take the gospel of the lost in some kind of ministry or another thing. The lost to whom we are going are going to be ever so anxious to hear our message of grace, but that's often not the case. The world has never been a friend to grace. Never. Perhaps no Old Testament prophet so clearly prophesied the ministry of the suffering servant as what we saw in Isaiah 53 at the beginning. But Isaiah's message will not be well received by the Jewish people of his day. It's a message of judgment for their sins and rejection of God. Look at verses 9 to 13 and then I'll make some brief closing remarks. He said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Let me just throw one other word in here. There comes a point where God, the Holy Spirit, draws you and draws you and draws you and draws you and you hear a message and your heart is touched but you don't respond to the fullness of what he wants you to do and then all of a sudden what happens? Your heart gets harder and harder and harder and then finally the ultimate judgment is God hardens your heart. That's happening to Israel. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. That's the mission given to Isaiah. I don't want that ministry. But it's a ministry I have this morning. Because some of your hearts are going to be harder, having heard the word of God. I like a mercy of ministry of mercy and grace and love. Then I said, verse 11, How long, O Lord? He said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses while people on the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away in the forsaken places or many in the midst of a land, and though a tenth of it remain in it, it'll be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. I think when Isaiah said, here am I, Lord, send me, that he thought it would result in the cleansing of the nation, of his people, of his own. But the Lord told him the people had not listened before, and they're not going to listen now. In fact, as a result of hearing Isaiah's message, the people would become even more hardened against God. Captivity would come after Isaiah's death. Isaiah's death, by the way, which many believe Hebrews 11.37 is speaking of when it says, they were sawn in two, meaning they were sawed in half, a martyrdom's death. The people's hearts grew harder, thus they were deported from the land, verse 12. They left their ruined cities and fields, verse 11. One-tenth were left in the land. They were the poor ones left behind by Nebuchadnezzar when he took the rest of the nation into captivity and uh, Babylon, but most of them were laid waste also. But God always has a remnant. There's always a seed. No matter how dark the hour, how much judgment, there's always a believing remnant. There's always a seed. And he left Isaiah with a promise that not all would be lost. God compared that remnant to stumps of terebinth or an oak. And from this stump, verse 13... Or holy seed would come others who would believe. And though Judah's population would be almost totally wiped out or exiled, God promised to preserve a small number of believers in the land. He had to in order to be faithful to his promises.
because we know 700 years later than 500 years after the Babylonian captivity, that seed would be produced in the birth through the Virgin Mary of the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David. God calls us to be faithful to his word. He calls us to warn others of the eternal judgment. He calls us to be compassionate instruments of his message of mercy, love, and grace that if appropriated through the finished work of Christ can be the only price of redemption for their sins. I want to say with Charles Spurgeon, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, then let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. That's the heart God wants us to have. Let's not play church. Let's stop fooling around. There's a world, there's your neighbors, there's your family, they're their friends. They're going to die and they're going to go to hell. At least give them the opportunity. How long has it been? How long has it been since you told someone about his mercy and grace? And if you're here today, whether regular or visitor, it's another opportunity. Some of you, it's another time, it's another message, it's another response. And you haven't responded correctly yet. Before eternity dawns on your soul, I beg you to respond to the loving Savior, our Lord Jesus, and trust him as your Savior. Let's bow in prayer, shall we? And as I pray, I'm going to encourage you to, in the best way you know how, trust Christ as your Savior. Just as you sit there, something even like Lord Jesus Christ, the best way I know how right now, right now, I put my faith and trust in you and you alone. Christian, that you would in your heart of hearts love him so much for what he did for you and have that great zeal to share that message with others. Trust Christ as you sit right there. Respond to God in whatever way he is leading you at this moment. I'm going to ask that you stand as we close with the benediction. Father, thank you for your amazing love and your mercy. Thank you for your holiness this morning that we have been reminded about. Stir our hearts, O Father. Thank you for such a gracious, holy, merciful high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. Dismiss us with thy blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, you are dismissed.